I left off last night talking about the bundle of sticks and what that might involve. And I said there are five, a handful of teachings that cover what is required to get you across the river. And an emphasis on the fact that this is fairly simple, a fairly small collection of facts and techniques. They just seem to be used a lot. Five, well, you know, in some forms of music, there's only five notes. And you can make it a fantastic amount of music with just five notes. So these five subjects are often given in the suttas to new monks to go off and dwell under the foot of a tree, maybe for the rest of their lives. So they're going to be living in basically out, it's northern India, and they'll be living much of the time outside, maybe in a small cottage, kuti. And that's it. No friends, no family, no supper, no music, no fun, no dancing. (laughs) There will be a very restrained kind of life. On occasion, they will go to the nearest village to collect some food, keeping their eyes down, getting the food and leaving. Aside from that, they'll listen to a few Dhamma talks over time. They will not have iPods. They cannot just listen to Dhamma at any time. It all has to be done live with a person who's qualified, and that person will give talks from time to time. This situation in a, where you come on retreat and I talk every night is not what the monks would experience in a lifetime. They, they would not be going and hearing a Dhamma talk every night. It might be months and, or even years to go by without having a Dhamma talk given, and etc. What they would do, though, is the, the, one, the, the, the material that they were given, they would rehearse this every day. One of the things they would do is get up in the morning and then literally chant it. So the chanting is just a form of recitation, and of course they're doing it in their own native tongue, so whatever we, when we chant in Pali... It's just the language that they were using at the time or an approximation of it. They would have been speaking in their own language, reciting these things, something in a rhythmic way just to aid memory. Kind of like I before E except after C, all kinds of things. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I still remember the tune for the alphabet. So... This is just the memory devices. This is all they had. These are the resources they had to build a raft with. And this handful of teachings the Buddha would give them, aside from quite a coaching on the rules of conduct, which just basically lay out the boundaries of your life so that you are clear on and don't waste a lot of energy having to sort it out. It's good to have some clarity about where your boundaries are, what you are not, you won't step over, and what you won't do, and not have to make the decision every day, again, like freshly. 
it's good to get that out of the way, have it well rehearsed, and then you don't have to think about it anymore. I don't, I, we have hundreds of rules as monks, and I don't think about them actually anymore. It doesn't feel like I have any rules anymore. I, I have hundreds. It's now second nature and it doesn't take up any space. And also when we meet communally and so forth, we have rehearsed all of these things. And so it's quite easy to be together because we have rehearsed things and then you don't have to work it out each time. Just, it's basically a reduction of wasted energy. Buddha is very big on energy and the effective use of energy. Under right effort, you'll again and again the phrase stirring up energy will occur. So energy is a very important spiritual faculty to have the energy. And you don't want to waste energy. So there's an economy of thought. And there's an economy of motion, actually, even in the body. Monks are have prescribed ways of walking, especially in in public areas, prescribed ways of doing things. And this becomes an economy of motion and also an economy of speech. So you have your clear about your, what is right speech, what is wrong speech. You don't have to process this again and again. Once you have these things clear, then it really releases you from a lot of unnecessary, wasted energy. So then you can play freely within, the, within those disciplines. What is initially a discipline eventually just becomes an envelope for freedom. So these tasks or these subjects are given to the monk and any uh, dedicated practitioner really can use them in order to get more and more free. They're prescribed processes of thought. They're prescribed attitudes and you just rehearse them. That's all. It's not really all that personal. They're quite universal. Different personalities, though, will have certain faculties, certain tendencies will be exaggerated in certain personalities. Certain people are angry and very angry, and that would be an anger temperament, and others are quite greedy, but not so angry, and that would be a greed temperament. Others are what we call delusional or kind of foggy, unfocused, and that's a type of temperament, but they might not be all that angry or (laughs) greedy. So there are certain topics which are particularly helpful for one or two or three of those temperaments. But if you have any of those, you have all of them. It's just a matter of the proportions. If you're angry, you must have delusion as well, and you will have some greed. If you're greedy, you will have some anger and you will have some delusion. And if you have delusion, you will have greed and anger. They're interconnected, but you might not have them in the same proportion as somebody else. just want to mention perhaps a little priority structures of those three characteristics, which is whenever you have a little summary of Buddhism, it's greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Greed, hatred, and delusion. So 
There's a nice little teaching on the Buddha about these things. Anger is more problematic than greed. The Buddha says it's a great stain on the personality. Anger, all of the spectrum of aversion is a great stain on the personality. That's the bad news. Good news is it's fairly easy to get rid of, actually. <laughs> the reason is it's intrinsically unpleasant to have. It feels bad. It doesn't feel good. So if you come across this idea that you could not be angry, it seems quite interesting and appealing because then you wouldn't feel so bad. It's very easy to be motivated to reduce anger and all of the spectrum which it involves, all the spectrum of aversion from mild irritability. Boredom is a form of aversion. Sadness is a form of aversion. These are all things which, in other words, we don't like. It's not wanting, disliking. So when you're sad, you don't like the situation or you wouldn't be sad. It's also intrinsically a negative experience. To be depressed is a form of aversion as well. And uh, so then there's greed, which is a lesser stain upon the personality. So if you're greedy, then don't be too upset about that. It's not as bad as being really angry. <laughs> It's, it's easier to get along with greedy people and stuff. And you also can actually be somewhat happy in your greed. <laughs> you can celebrate your cravings and desires. You might even find a group who celebrates the same cravings and desires as you do. And is quite proud of their cravings and desires. And it doesn't necessarily disintegrate the society as well. Anger it has very noxious side effects on yourself and others. Greed is not so destructive and not so unpleasant. But here's the bad news. It's hard to get rid of. It is always problematic because you're never fully at ease and content. Contentment at ease is the absence of greed. But the greed is sometimes accompanied by pleasure. And so it's hard to set a boundary and give up your pleasure. Even though it always requires a deficit before you get the pleasure. I mean, there's an anticipatory pleasure as well. You, can, you know that you shouldn't eat ice cream. You've, you're on a diet, but there is ice cream in the freezer. And it's nine o'clock at night and you're watching something that has ice cream in it. And, uh, and then you find yourself getting up and you know that you said you weren't going to eat ice cream, but you walk towards the fridge. Every step of the way is a happy step. <laughs> and then that's anticipatory joy. And then you actually get the stuff out and put a bowl down unless you just eat it right out of the carton but you put the bowl down you fill the bowl and then of course it's quite delicious as well very pleasurable and then you think damn i, I said i wasn't going to do that 
Then there's a little, there's some regret, some remorse, and a new determination. That's it. That's the last time. I am on my diet now. But you see how hard it is because tomorrow it'll taste just as good. It will all be the same kind of quality and pleasure of every step and every bite is just pleasurable. And so it's hard to, to stop that, right? It's, the motivation to stop that is like, why would I want to stop this? Well, I, it's because I'm, I'm getting too fat or the, there's too much cholesterol or I'm, there's various reasons. I'm running out of money. I'm spending it all on ice cream, uh, whatever it is. I mean, that can happen in your student days. You know, you can actually blow your budget on just ice cream. So that's its problem is that can I just be happy without the ice cream? Why do I need the ice cream? What if I was just happy? Then the motivation for the ice cream would not be so strong I could do without the ice cream. You have to understand there's a higher possibility of happiness, a more sustained possibility of happiness, and that's why you're going to overcome the greed for the ice cream. And then the last one is delusion, and delusion is a great stain on the personality and very hard to get rid of. Bad news, bad news. It's because you can't see your own mistakes. You can't see the mis drawn map. You can't see it directly. So it's very hard to understand it. You can't see what you're missing. You can't see what you can't see. You know that little spot in your eye where you don't see out of? I don't know, maybe it's news to some of you that you have a blind spot in your eye and you can, you can find it by, you know, with take a pencil or something like that and jab it in your eye. No, no, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just bring it across, slowly across your eye and you'll see it disappear and then come out the other side. But the blind spot is not actually, you're not aware of it. There's nothing in this room that seems to be missing, but there is something missing in your field of vision. And that's why it's so tricky with this. Delusion is like that. It's something missing in there, but you don't, not aware of it. Occasionally you blunder into it. You, you realize that you have a, in false notion of reality, you meet shocks and disappointments. You turn out to be wrong about things. And that tells you, well, I, that's weird because I was sure I was, I didn't think I was wrong about that, but it turns out I'm wrong about that. So that's why it's hard to manage that. It's problematic because it's hard to know even what to do about it, but then it's hard to get motivated to do anything about it as well. So that's the job. That's what we're attempting to find this bundle of sticks, which will undo both the greed and the hatred and the delusion. The mystery of when you promise yourself and you said to yourself, and you know it's perfectly clear that you must stop this ice cream thing, and then you do it. That is because the greed has its roots in delusion and certain rational plans can be canceled like that by some other person who lives inside your head. 
and dismisses previous clear-eyed resolutions. So all of these things have to be overcome, and this is right effort is this this path, this moment, you've come to right effort here. So this is base camp six. This is the sixth factor of the Eightfold Path, and this is a place where you're moving up the mountain. Many people will never get to the base camp, not even on a day trip to visit it. And you're actually, this is the base camp for the higher climb. All the equipment, all of the maps, all of the planning, all of the techniques for getting up to the eighth factor, samasamadhi, where you're temporarily free of greed, of hatred, and delusion. You're temporarily free of that. And the sixth factor is where you get organized and get the strategies where you're going to have to deal with the problems along the way. You need that information. You're going to carry out that information with the seventh factor, mindfulness. Right mindfulness is how you take those tools that you got under right effort and proceed on the journey to the eighth factor, where where actually the journey really ends there because you're at this place where you can see. And that's the value of cultivating samadhi or lucid serenity, focused and joyful clarity is because you can see from there. So you get above the fog level and on the peak of the mountain there. And then, as the Buddha says, for one who has samadhi, this balanced clarity, there's no need to wish, may wisdom arise. Wisdom naturally rises and swells out of serenity. So this is the strategy, the sixth, seventh, and eighth factor are how you get to see these things and undo the inherent defects of your inner maps. This is where you get to see, you can see now, you don't need the map, you can actually see where you're going. Clarity, it all becomes clear at that point. So it's good to know this, and this is a spiritual, uh, this is a sort of a, you're moving towards supernormal kind of emotional and intellectual processes. This is where ordinary people don't go. They don't go there. And the instructions under right effort are for proceeding towards a supernormal condition of well-being, of emotional clarity and well-being. And that's why they're specific. It's not just advice for life. It's advice for supernormal life. And so that's why you have those four aspects, the prevention, the removal, the maintenance and deepening. And you have a division of 
those types of things which will impede your journey to supernormal well-being and those which will aid your journey. So those are the instructions, and it's good to, because otherwise you may, because there's all kinds of voices in society and various cultures and religious ideas and philosophical ideas and psychological ideas that are, you're imbibing through all kinds of media and so forth. Half of the time, you're not aware of it, etc. But most of those voices are not applicable to the development of this above normal emotional well-being and clarity, that they're not suitable for that. They're often to make life just bearable, but not for proceeding to the above where the normal person goes in their entire life. This is what this is about. Is That's why there's just a handful of you here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not too many people want to make the journey up Everest, you know, so it's not normal. It's above normal, um, the inquiry. Anyway, the, the methods, the techniques, five of them, these are to do with the overcoming of the hindrances and the induction of the positive things in right effort. So the first thing would be the young monk is going to go off and sit under a tree and he's at that stage, he's probably a normal person or normal, she's a normal nun or normal monk or a normal lay person. And they're going to go and sit under a tree, which is already not normal. Like most people want to play frisbee or something, golf, something normal, like chase a little ball around a golf course. Uh, yeah, what did Mark Twain say? Golf is a, uh, a good walk ruined. <laughs> Wouldn't it be just better to go for a walk around that lovely green thing? <laughs> Why do you want to ruin it by sabotaging your happiness with a club and a ball? So to go and sit under a tree is already a little bit most people don't want to do that. Not for very long, at least. But if you're willing to do that, then you're going to have to face your normality. And the fact is, so that normality is, the norm is actually crazy. It's normal to be crazy, you know that? But the longer I'm a monk, you see, the more I see that most people are crazy. <laughs> now, how did I get to know that? only by discovering my own craziness, right? You, in order to know other people, it's not by interacting with other people that you get to know about other people. People who should know about other people, like who are in the professions even, they're in the legal profession or the, they're judges or psychologists or etc. Quite often they, they're not very good at assessing other people at all although they spend a lot of their time around other people and in interaction with them, they're not that good at knowing other people. How do you get to know another person? Actually, it's not by 
interacting with them. It's by being alone. Because you can see directly into your own mind. You get to know the nature of mind. There's nothing really personal about your mind. You didn't invent the thing. You didn't grow the thing. You didn't make the thing. It just is there. And you don't have, you, you have no idea where it came from. My mind, my, my this, my, I'm so smart and all this kind of stuff. When did you, what, were you up in the middle of the night making the thing? You know, what, when did you make this thing? You have no idea where it comes from. It's just there. It's something just there. And you get to look at it. You, strangely, you can see it. And how that happened, that's nothing to do with you either. It just does it. It just does it. Now that's what you're working, that's called mind. There's nothing personal about it, it's just mind. It's mind. And if you want to know about mind, look at it. You can't see anybody else's mind. You can see your own mind directly. It's like you can't see your own face. You can see everybody else's face, but you can't see your own face. You can see your own mind, but you can't see anybody else's mind. That's why you're so critical of yourself. So you can see what's going on in your mind, but you can't see. Everybody else looks quite normal, don't they? <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't see what's going on in their mind. You can see what's going on in your mind. It's very problematic. It's outrageous, in fact. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see everybody else's face, and then you, so you're kind of compassionate. You, you appreciate their... You see the sorrows and the perplexity and you feel quite empathic but towards yourself no no you don't see your own humanity you can't see your own face so you're kind of this blank thing full of terrible thoughts <laughs> without a human face headless actually you start somewhere about there and go down there's nothing nothing above that it's just an empty room above that. And everybody else has a head. It's just weird. You're the only one without a head. Everybody else has a head, a face. But you have a mind and nobody else has a mind. They just have a face. This is the weirdness of it. And so if you want to learn about others' minds, don't inquire. Just watch your mind a lot. See what it does. And we can tell you what it does because it's not your mind, it's, it's mind. And that's why the Buddha is so amazingly, like, whoa, he's talking about my mind. I do that. How did he know that? How did he know that? Did he read my mind? <laughs> no, <laughs> he read his mind. You want to become your, a reader of mind, your own mind. So when you go there under the tree, you're going to, what's natural is you're going to think, because there's nothing else to do there. It's just a tree. You get over it after a while. It's quite nice. I, I spent years, I loved the forests, and I, but I decided to go, I was going to live in a forest and with no distractions. When you walk into a forest, you know, especially nice old growth stuff and the coast mountains and rivers and Ah, it's quite amazing. For the first hour, the first day, even the first week, or even the first month. And then, you know, you've pretty well seen that emerald moss. 
And that tree, and the leaves of the tree, and the needles of the tree, and the water on the ground, and the river. Yeah, you've seen it. Okay, now what'll we do now? <laughs> I'm in the forest. I've 24 hours a day. I'm in the forest. No distractions. Nothing else to do. Okay. The vivid interest in trees has now diminished. <laughs> it's no longer enough to entertain me. And if a month is not enough, give it two months, three months, four months, five months, six months, eight months, ten months, a year, two years. Eventually, it's just trees, basically. So what are you going to do with yourself? You're going to think. And this, you can, th oh, it's amazing. You think, you recover memories. You never thought you never would, you'd lost forever. You go back there. You can, it's, oh, you dream up this and you dream up that. But that becomes annoying after a while. So this is, what is it that can help you get out of the excessive discursive activity of the mind? What can help you? Because this becomes just a dreamy, you know, it's not why you went there. And that's the breath. So the breath is the how to overcome excessive discursive activity of mind. Because the breath is so simple, it's colorless. It has no form, no shape, no color. It has no taste to it. It is, it's nothing. There is a feeling to it. You can know, you can feel that you're breathing, but that's all. And the feeling is neither exciting nor irritating. It's neutral. It's just the mildest experience. And if you can get your mind to actually stop that thinking stuff and just experience the breath, and you, there's all kinds of techniques, and you can count the breath, you can count one. You don't have to count your in-breath, just two. You don't have to do this out loud either, you just count it. Up to five, and then you can go back to one. You're really not going anywhere. This is another thing to avoid, like, I wonder how many I can count. That's another discursive thing, like, can I count to a hundred? Just count to five and go back to one. Because this is helping you know that you've just wandered. If you don't do that, you'll, you'll sit down to do your breath, and then half an hour later, you'll realize, I never, I forgot two seconds in that, that I was supposed to do breath meditation. So there's tricks and stuff to help you do the breath, but you get better and better. But you get relief when you start to feel this, that you're endless, the known world is just thought, the world of thoughts. That's the known world for most people. There is no other world for them. That's the only known world. Or sleep. Only when you're asleep do you not think, but because you're asleep, you don't even know that you don't think. You know, you, you're just a continuous thinking machine, which is too bad to be condemned to eternally think. This is a way of winding this down, and that's one of the this is a wholesome quality that you're developing and can prevent a lot of the hindrances from arising because they all arise. You go back to some memory and then you think, ah, I should have done this and I, I should have, and I, why did I put up with that and this? And why did they put up with it? Why did they put up with me? And then, you know, on and on and on. This is 
the rambling of thoughts eventually will drag you into these unwholesome areas, the hindrances will arise, and then you're, you're gone. So the thoughts can take the form of aversion, and they can take the form of desire, and they can take the form of just chaos and confusion. So the, you don't want to be doing that under the tree. That's not why you went there. You want, went there for supernormal well-being, and so you're, you're going to have to learn how to reduce, diminish the intensity and volume of this thinking process when you wish to. It doesn't mean you will never think again. It means that you should be able to decide whether you want to think or not. And some volition about that. Otherwise, you're just, you are just being carried down a river in a canoe without a paddle. You're just being swept down the river of thought. You should be able to get to the shore from time to time and just get out of the river. And you should be able to navigate the river as well. You've got to know how to not just be swept down it. You have some navigation, so you have a choice about what you want to think and how long you want to think. And then when you wish to cease from that thought and be in another type of consciousness that is fully awake but at ease without a discursive activity. So this is absolutely vital if you want to free yourself from the... There's no way to rise above the normal without some form of control over this. You're going to have irritability, uh, aversion, even though you're under this, there's nothing going on around you under the tree, but eventually the frogs will annoy you, the birds will annoy you, things will annoy you. So one way to prevent this is to head it off at the pass or to remove it by replacement is through the practice of loving-kindness. So remember that the anger is a great stain, but is fortunately easy to get rid of. How do you get rid of it? One of the ways is not to have it to begin with, and so that you dwell deliberately in positive emotions, radiating out for all beings. Without You're not interested in who they are, what they've done, what their history is, whether they're your enemy or whether they're your friend or whatever. You're not interested in anything about them, actually. There, is no, there are no conditions attached to this. You're just radiating it out and including yourself. But you're not interested in who you are either. There's no personal history to this. You're not giving yourself goodwill because you're a good person or you did well or because you're disappointed in yourself and you need to cheer yourself up. None of those conditions apply. The idea of loving kindness is without any conditions whatsoever. It's just, can you find the emotion and radiate it so that you are prevented from experiencing any form of aversion? And when you prevent yourself from this, what are you doing? You're starving your avijja, you're starving your delusions. You're not nourishing your delusions. You're not cultivating your delusions. You're transforming into something else, another type of being. And the only reason, by the way, is that you can transform into another type of being is that you're not really a being. Well, you are a being. You're not a thing. You are a, you are a, 
flux, a causal flux. It's coherent causal flux. It works in certain ways, but it's a flux. It's not a thing. So that's why you can completely turn into something else. And this is the causes that you put into the flux to get this result, this cake at the end. Uh, this garden at the end. So you meddle with the current in this flow of consciousness, of feelings, of decisions, of how the mind works. You meddle in it. You, you fiddle with it. You, you play with it. You poke it. And you poke it with these things, these skillful tools, and it changes all of the current patterns. It changes all of the flow of the river. It changes the wave structures. It changes everything. And you can't do it except by putting in causes. You can't actually control the flow. You put in the causes and the flow just naturally must change in those directions. It must. There's no whimsical aspect to this. It's a causal flux. So when you put those causes in, those results must appear. And most people are putting in causes all the time, but they're unskillful causes. So the results must appear. You can't have no control over the wanderings of your mind and have aversive ideas and so forth and not expect absolutely predictable results. The results are predictable. And if you do the opposite of that, the results are predictable. But if you don't put those causes in, you will not get those results. So we've solved some very serious problems with just breath and loving kindness, actually. Remember that the greed part is, is not such a big problem, but if you really want to be really super well, <laughs> above normal well, you've got to deal with your greed as well, because it's a shame to just be sitting there not being really content, but just wanting something, thinking that. So that is dealt with by taking things apart that you like, that you find attractive. You have to take them apart and say, come on, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a bunch of atoms or, you know, a car, uh, you know, it's just metal and rubber and glass. Come on. It's, that's what it really is. And what is it about the red paint that you think? Just get something red and look at it. Lick, lick the red. It's just, it's just red for God's sake. You know, it's free. Red is everywhere. What, what's so, it's metal. What's so great about metal? Get a piece of metal and see, what is it that I think is so great about a piece of metal? whether it's shaped this way or that way, well, just draw a picture of it. If you think it's, the form is so great, just draw a picture of it. What, why don't you just have a picture of a car? If you really want that red Ferrari, just get a picture of it. That's just good enough. You need to deflate the objects of your cravings. You deflate it. And then you will feel like, yeah, I don't care about that anymore. I used to really want that, but now I don't. And I feel at peace. <laughs> and peace is better than the thing. <laughs> That's, you, you have to say, I want to be a peaceful, content, and happy, and complete person. And uh, remember that the Buddha is trying to 
get the person to go to, say, into a forest and see, can you be complete, happy, and well without all of these other distractions and so forth? So that you're honestly well and happy, and it's not some secret sort of distraction or, or thing. How are you in the forest? That's where he puts you in this kind of low sensory. You know, it's a nice in the forest, but as I say, after a month, you know, it's like you've seen the trees, it's, uh, it's nothing much to see anymore. And how are you now? Are you okay? You know, feel okay? Happy? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to be happy without needing all this other stuff, without having fights all the time? Would it be nice to be happy? Yes, of course it'd be nice to be happy. It'd be absolutely strange to be happy all the time. That, that's not normal. It's, it's actually super normal. <laughs> You need, you're going to get lazy sometimes. And then you need a little shot in the arm, some energy. And one of the energetic topics is death. Think, ah, well, you know, I can die anytime <laughs> tomorrow. I should get on with this bit of business before I, before I die. Because that's not, when that happens, it's just totally uncertain. So I should just push on here. Death is energizing. It will help you clear the fog sometimes and give you some energy. You know, just, just got to think, you know, this is it. Little life, handful of decades at the top, at the best. And then at the later decades, things go downhill. And you might not get any decades further than this one. There's always that. And you gotta bring that up and just think about it. Say, got a certain amount of time here. What am I doing with it? I, I really, let's do the best I can with this time. Your life principle comes up. Death is a kind of enlivening. If people are, say, they're in a, in a late night dhamma talk, dozing off kind of thing, and and the speaker is boring and. Uh, they're dozing off. But somebody comes in with a gun. Everybody's awake already. You know, so, so interesting. Things just so interesting. And you're just energized. You can just, you're awake now. <laughs> That's the enlivening effect of the fact of death. That life is precious. Time is precious. We need to use it for the best possible purpose. That's good. So that's a little helpful thing for the monk to take along to the forest. I mean, in the forest, actually, when I was in the forest, it was quite easy to feel mortal and vulnerable. I was encountering bears everywhere, and there was cougars, and there was, there was grizzlies at the higher elevation, and black bears at the, on my porch, and cougars slinking around and trying to hunt down the neighbor's dog, and everything and just then climbing around in these kind of gullies and slippery boulders i think just one little slip here and nobody will even find my body <laughs> be careful <laughs> yeah there's a kind of a a sense of vulnerability and fragility unprotected in the forest you know, I go to the Thai forest and there's all these creepy crawlies and po everything's poison everything is poison even though the tiniest ant is a chemical warfare machine, 
That's how in the tropics you got to be armed with chemical warfare. Like it's not enough just to be strong, you know. And then there is this topic which we need to reflect on, and it's our insight topic. And it's the most accessible one, and that is change, just relentless, endless, flowing, impossible to stop change. That is the impermanent thing, that everything's just sweeping away. Time is, time is devouring the universe. You are, you are being devoured by time. And everything is just dreamlike disappearing. And where is it disappearing? Where does the universe go? Where is yesterday's universe? It's gone. You know, it's just where it goes into, it's a mystery, but it's just constant and nothing. There's no place to hang on, no place to get stability in that. That's the most accessible. You know, you, you hear these three topics, this anicca, dukkha, anatta. But Anicca is the most accessible one. That's why they, it's given with this little handful of, of teachings. Is that it's really quite visible when you reflect on it. It's easy to reflect on. You can see the changes in your life. You can see short-term changes. An hour goes by. You feel differently in an hour. You get up, stretch your legs, and, and then everything's different, you know? And, uh, and then... It's time for bed and air awake again. It's gone. Everything just keeps going. So you, short term change is obvious, and then then you can reflect on your. See, you can use your you can use your thought process. You can use your imagination and your memory. Everything's not the absence of discursive activity, as in the breath meditation. There is the use of your imagination and your memory, and one of them is for loving kindness. You you cultivate the feeling of loving kindness through your imagination and your memory. Is very helpful. And with impermanence is to reflect and use your imagination and memory to see what's gone by and what must go by. That all of my future also will be the past as well. It'll all be gone. That's a very engaging and it steps out of the normal way the human mind works. The human mind functions with objects and objects which move through time. But that's not the way it really is. The more you reflect on this, the more you will see this. You know, when I was in the forest, I would think about trees because, you know, it can be a thousand-year-old tree and it looks like a very solid object. But I would, I would imagine taking a photograph of it every day and then putting all those photographs together and then speeding it up. And I would imagine that it was just like a little fountain that just shot out of the ground, like a tree is just this earth fountain that just shoots up and branches like that, like, like water, and then just topples over. You see it when you're watching a fountain because it happens so fast, but everything is just actually a water. You know, it's just a fountain of processes. Because it's happening slowly, it looks like it's a thing, but it's not a thing. It's, it's just a, a little flow into the sky. If you just accelerate the movie, of the universe, it's just this <laughs> nothing and then something, nothing. And what was that? 
anything, all your life, your etc. This is just that you play with this in your mind. You dwell on this feature, and until this feature, the sign appears. This is like you're extracting a characteristic out of something. This is what things, when you're unfamiliar with things, they're just kind of blurs and everything. But eventually, the more familiar and more information you get, you begin to extract a characteristic, a sign out of it. So when you reflect on this all the time, you keep this going, this idea of change and flow and so forth. All of reality starts to shift into that more like a dream. It's much more dreamy or a handful of foam, you know, picked up off of water. It just has nothing in it. It just looks solid. You know, the foam looks solid. You could almost walk, but it's just, it's gone. A lightning flash, a bubble. This is, this is the stuff that we're getting all upset about, you know, a handful of foam, a dream, a bubble, a flash of lightning. This is what, we're making a big deal about. There's no, you cannot find stability in this. You can't find a safe place in here. There's no security. <laughs> it's just a dream. On the, on the other hand, because of that, what's the get upset about? You know, what's the, what's the thing to get out all serious about? It's, it's a dreamy flow. Speaking of dreamy flows, I've been talking for an hour, so I think it's time to gently go to sleep. I'll leave it tonight. <laughs>